So our nation is caught up in a great and uh, expensive, both in terms of time, wealth, resources, energy, emotion. We are all caught up in this nation, of course, in what could be described as, well, a constitutional issue. Of course, we're thinking of the impeachment. And what makes me think today about that is not the partyism of it, uh, not that there is such a divide, almost 50-50 in our country, about uh, the interpretation or the, the perspective, however you want to frame it. I, I don't want to go there. But, 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 but however you view it, certainly there's a partisan aspect to this. But, but that's not what's really amazing me right now. What's really amazing me is how important it is to us. And you say, well, not really. I don't think about it much. No, I don't mean that. I don't mean that you've been watching it, you know, 24-7, all that. But, but, I mean, literally billions of dollars are being spent. You know, people's time and resources. I mean, the, the, it's a deeply serious issue, and both sides would agree. That's where we are, at least one. We are all fighting, it seems, or arguing, I, my better word. We're arguing, but at, at the core, what are we arguing about? What are we arguing about? There is one thing that we all agree, is we want a nation. It's kind of simple, isn't it? But we want a nation. We want something that we put under the rubric nation. Now, I want to use nation in a much more philosophical sense. I mean by that a dominion, a, a kingdom. There is a kingdom building going on, or a kingdom reevaluation, or a kingdom reassessment, however you want to look at it, but we're, but we're about this kingdom. And then I stop and think that, gosh, that has been such, I mean, think about the history of humanity now. I mean, come on, you go to church to do this, right? I mean, it has been the passion of all of humanity from the very beginning. Of course, we know that as believers because we have a document that goes back to the beginning in its historical reflection. And we see it in Genesis 1. It is about spheres, sovereign spheres. Chapter 1, beautifully, poetically stated, there is, if we know anything else, about the nature of Eden and the nature of this cosmos, it is defined by virtue of its sovereign spheres, dominions, kingdoms. We hear the cry throughout the redemptive history. The desire for a king, don't think of that as a personal thing. The desire for rule, for order, for protection, for safety, Somehow, this dominion idea is huge. You could say it truly is the most consistent, purpose-driven aspect of humanity that there is. Is that too bold? I don't think so. At least it's not when we turn to the scripture. What is the meaning of our life? On this earth, that is. What are we wanting? What do we need? And how does this idea of the kingdom respond to that? 
We want a kingdom. And of course, not by accident, this is exactly how Matthew wants to present the coming of Christ as the coming of one who would inaugurate the kingdom of God. He does this in a very significant way because he begins in a genealogy where he wants to make sure that we see Jesus as the successor to kings. He moves forward and quickly the very first act of Jesus, the very first moment where Jesus begins his public ministry, the very first thing you are told is that Jesus began to preach the king, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's simple. It's the purpose. And that's the passage we want to focus in on today. Particularly in the manner in which we see how it's carefully framed, though, which tells us much about it. So we're going to have kind of a three-part series in this chapter four here of, of, of Matthew, where, wherein we see this idea of the kingdom, how it comes in the midst of temptation and tribulation. We see that in right before Christ's temptation and then the tribulation of, of John the Baptist. And then on the other side of that statement where Jesus began to preach the coming, repent for the coming of the kingdom of the land, we see how there's this incredible uh, uh, optimistic pursuit where he sends out the disciples to build the kingdom make disciples of that kingdom. But I want you to keep in mind what this means on the street. Help me with that, even in your own mind. What does this all mean on the street? How does it reframe the activity of our lives? How does it reframe our purpose-driven lives? How does it reframe how we, and put what, where we put our confidence is nation building a good thing? Well, it's going to be a more complicated answer probably. But there will be a kind of penultimate and ultimate. As we'll see how this kingdom is, is incredibly and amazingly complex and yet simple. What I mean by that? We were going to see three observations in our text already. We're going to put it in context today. We're going to see that the kingdom of God is the central teleological, if you will, or central theme of the Bible. It starts in Genesis. It ends in Revelations 21. It is core, the kingdom of God. Secondly, we're going to see how the of God is the significant underlying part of the phrase. It's not a kingdom like this world. It's a kingdom that comes into collision, actually, with the world after the fall. And thirdly, we're going to find that this kingdom is dynamic. How it is that it came, it is coming, and it will come. And how that adjusts the tension, explains the tensions we feel as Christians, but also how to adjust our expectations now in comparison for then. So let us start with prayer. Father, we thank you so much for how you speak to us, how you enable us by your grace. What a gift we have 
that you reveal your mind, your soul, your heart, your person. You reveal to us through a history, a history carefully choreographed by the Holy Spirit and your providence, wherein when we speak of the coming of the kingdom of God, we do not speak in platitudes, we do not speak in concepts only, but we speak of spheres and people and places and power. All manifest itself in time and space, historically awaiting the time and space of the ultimate history itself and the coming of the kingdom of God. It's all of this, Father, that we come asking you now to unveil to us, really, the meaning of life and our purpose in it. So please come, Lord, and speak to us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Again, in Matthew 4, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's our text today. And first of all, I want you to think about, as I've said, just a little bit about how to understand this particular passage in the light of, really, the Bible. Very quick survey. It begins pre-fall. It's a pre-fall description where Eden is carefully presented as an earthly kingdom under the sovereign rule of a heavenly God. There is something connecting here. How humanity made in the image of God his, her very purpose in life is stated this way. So let us make humanity in our image after our illness image and let them have dominion. An image bearing dominion. There is a kind of, if you know the philosophical language here, there's a type and an anti-type. That is, there's, there is a paradigm, there is a pattern, there is an order, there is a kingdom, there is, there is a dominion, not of this world, that is intended now to inform and be re-paradigmed into this order. How's that for some speak? I want you to see the gravity of this. The image bearers are to have dominion but not a dominion that directs the world to themselves as the dominion sovereigns, but who are under sovereigns with respect to God. How do I know that? Because it's very carefully choreographed. How it is that Genesis 1 gives you these three sovereign spheres using sovereign language like things like moons or ruling over the skies. Ruling's a word. There's these three sovereign spheres, sky, land, sea, all with their rulers, and humanity being the, the penultimate of all triultimate rulers, if you will. It all climaxes with a day that has no sphere, for this is the sphere outside of our spheres, the seventh day wherein the sovereign is portrayed as being seated in session. He is seated in the throne of the cosmos, a throne not of this world, who is to rule and direct through the sovereigns of this world his kingdom come. And we know the ambition is meant to be expanded because then that's where he gives these penultimate sovereigns on earth the great commission of the kingdom to go out and be fruitful and multiply. 
Yes, it might involve having babies, but that's not the point at all. Not if you follow that phrase, be fruitful and multiply throughout the history. It comes up every time there's a great redemptive historical work of God. It comes to Abraham. It comes to Noah. It comes to, and it goes on and on, this phrase, always referring to this earlier creation mandate to extend the dominion of God over the whole earth. We see this idea in Exodus 19. And you shall be to me a kingdom, he says, of priests and a holy nation. This was in the formation of Israel, a nation-building venture that is put into the context of being, therefore, on earth, a kind of, of, of uh, witness nation, if you will, on earth, depicting how it is the whole earth. In other words, Israel became what we now describe in Matthew 16, the church, which is where the, the kingdom of God, as, as Matthew will articulate, is, has its epicenter on earth. We see the centrality in the prophetic ministries. We heard Daniel 7 read. Let me read it again. I saw this great vision, this night vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven. Where are we now? We're up in that, that anti-type, that paradigm place. We behold the clouds of heaven. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. That is to God. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. We are moving in a climactic manner wherein it is that God now and God alone can bring the kingdom of God. He says so in his son this Savior, this Messiah. We see the centrality of the kingdom of God in the ministry of Christ. We've already noticed it, but if you read through the book of Matthew, no less than 33 times will you see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. 33 times. We, of course, said it. It introduces Christ from a genealogy of kings in Matthew 1. It's the central theme of John the Baptist's ministry in preparation for Christ when he says in chapter 3, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the central prayer for salvation, thy kingdom come. It's the central theme in Christ preaching himself, not only in verse 17 as we've already read, but, but we see it, for instance, in the Beatitudes. Over and over and over, blessed. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. We see it in the parables. To you it has been given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. We see it in the healings and the miracles. For instance, in the centurion's fervent, I tell you, many will come from east and west and that sit at this table in the kingdom of heaven. We see it in the casting out of demons. We see it in the performance of miracles. It says that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching on their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven. So what do we take home from this first point? Whatever else life is about, whatever else you're doing, whatever else is your passion, 
There is no greater passion, no greater purpose, no greater goal than that you would make it and I would make it our goal to serve, to witness, to proclaim the kingdom of God. That is a very bold statement in a world where honestly, it almost feels like it's irrelevant, doesn't it? It almost, if not really, feels irrelevant. What does that say? That the whole of human history and the whole of redemptive history makes it the most central of any theme you could find and that it is so marginalized in our thinking in a post-enlightenment, secular way of living life. And you say, well, I'm not saying, yeah, I mean by secular, a, a worldview, a way of framing life. Are we aware, are you aware of just how powerful is the worldview that has marginalized the view of all views over the world? I want you to just let that sink in. What an incredible contrast. I mean, it's as if, let's just be honest, you're sitting in a little bubble right now, and you're hearing a pastor go on and on and pontificate on and on about the kingdom of God, and you're thinking to yourself, man, that was an other world experience. <laughs> That's the problem. It is other world that's a bad problem because the whole purpose of life itself was to make it of this world. It's the meaning of this world. It's what's behind every energy that forms an organization seeking for the order, for the rule, for moral clarity, for a manner of life wherein there is a sovereign that protects us and cares for us and provides for us. However abstract or tangible, however personal or impersonal that sovereign is, it is what this world does. It is kingdom building. And we all are involved. And yet, what does it say? That we are all about it every day of our lives and the idea of the kingdom of God which is the very paradigm from heaven, which is to inform how we do it, is marginalized to the point that we don't even think about it and don't even think of it as relevant. Mm. That's just incredible. Every passion, every mission, every purpose of life is ultimately a kingdom-building venture. Even if we have conveniently, if you're on Satan's side, taken God out of it. We do it in many ways. We do it by privatization. We do it by keeping God on Sunday and, and not thinking about God on Monday through Saturday. We divide our questions up between, you know, personal questions, which are therefore private questions, which really don't belong to God-level questions. We, we've done some amazing things at, at putting up the boundaries cliches. You're made to feel foolish 
like you're some kind of a zealot if you would actually bring God into it. And that, but the very fact that it feels so weird to do it, the very fact that we feel uncomfortable doing it publicly should tell you how bad things have gotten relative to the reality of, of history for your very purpose. Genesis 1 is to image and to bear witness to the kingdom of God in our kingdom building. That God himself would be there. That brings us to number two. Whatever else you see throughout redemptive history about this kingdom, you see that it is theocentric. Notice the language of heaven. What does the grammar tell you here? If you, it's amazing to me, I was thinking about it driving in today, just how, how brilliant, I guess it was, you could put it this way, that God chose to reveal his mind through a language like Greek or Hebrew, because both of them have a very complex and detailed grammatical kind of structure, which means you can get to nuance that you can't get to in the English. Here we have what we describe as a genitive, that word, little word of. It, it, it has a whole range of semantic meaning here, but, but it can mean the source, of as in from a source, or it can mean of as related to a purpose. It can mean of related to a sphere. And what we find is this is exactly why the genitive is used here. It's not a separate word necessarily, even though it can have a kind of preposition in it in the Greek as well. And so what do you fill in the genitive with? Well, clearly here, you see a kind of source language. You see that this other world aspect of heaven, that is, it's a kingdom of what? Of heaven. Now, this is important because you see how this remains true both in Genesis and it returns in Revelations in chapter 1. For, for there we see again how the kind of kingdom that God envisions, that Eden was meant to to propagate and spread, which we are continuing to do, even those who are in Christ, we call it the Great Commission, this kingdom of heaven is therefore a kingdom of a source that's not from earth. I want you to get that really implanted. Much has gone astray and awry in the history of humanity by confusing that point. I, case in point, give you Babel. How we have it, humanity, who's matured and developed now since creation, who is awe-inspiring in terms of its ingenuity, its science, its learning, its understanding of the world. Now, you come to a moment, a juncture, thousands of years ago, where a people just got a little bit too big for their britches and envisioned that they instead of expecting the kingdom to come down from heaven, that they could build their kingdom up to heaven. And they built what we know today as a ziggurat, a great pyramid of sorts up to heaven. And you think, oh, that's so foolish. Really? What do you think is going on in this city? 
Ziggurats don't have to look like pyramids. Ziggurats can be abstract and conceptual. They can be personal. They can be all sorts of things. They can be homes. They can be universities. They can be nations. They can be vacation houses. Oh, it goes on and on. But what we see is this kingdom that defines the greatest purpose of existence is a kingdom that must come from heaven. And therefore we see in Revelations a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, a whole new Jerusalem. What are we talking about there? A kingdom. The antitype that I've been talking about. This Jerusalem of all Jerusalems, this city of all cities, this nation of all cities coming, what is it described? As coming down out of heaven from God. A new Jerusalem, a new earth, an earth where finally, after the thousands upon thousands, and we still don't know how many more thousands of years, it's come to its consummation, and it's defined as Eden fulfilled. I could go on about chapter 21 and how Eden is all through it, the tree, the water, all of it. It's another world that needs to break into this world. That's the manner. That was the beginning. Remember, we were the image bearers. Another world bearing witness to that other world to define and paradigm, if you will, this world. It's another polis. It's another politic. It's another power. It's another perspective. It's another kingdom breaking into the kingdoms of this world. And so when the text says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we should not in the first place think of a, of, of a static thing but rather of a divine kingly rule actually and effectively starting up operation in time and place through people. There's a people, there's a place, and there's a sovereign involved in all of this. It's a divine action and only by divine action as a powerful breaking through and pushing its way into an earth that has gone AWOL from the kingdom of God. And it has gone AWOL. And to the degree that we are part of it, we're screwed. To the degree that we're part of the kingdom of God, we're blessed. That's the way the whole Bible separates itself. Genesis goes that way. Very carefully, you have the 10 histories on this side, you have the 10 histories this side, the 10 histories that went AWOL and they're all screwed, and the 10 histories that were, were, remained in the redemptive purpose of God and they were blessed. That's the way that history is defined. There's just two ways. Screwed or blessed. Two ways. Of God or of man to build this kingdom. What does that tell you? What's the take home here? That only this kingdom only can come by virtue 
of the coming of God into the world. The kingdom of God cannot come by our own ingenuity. There's another person involved, God. And of course, this theocentric aspect of the kingdom of God, of God, by God, through God, for God, is paramount to the understanding of the kingdom of God, which is from the sphere of heaven, which is why the two are synonymous in Matthew. And in, you know, Matthew likes the heaven you know, way of saying it, the emphasis on the sphere of heaven breaking into earth. Luke refers mostly to the kingdom of, of God. But they're, of course, thinking of the same thing, just sphere and person and place. Of course, we see this, how Christ centered, therefore, the kingdom of God is. For how is it that God has broken into the world? The answer, absolute answer, is Jesus Christ. Exclusively Jesus Christ. There is no other that is God. There are many who would point you to God. Who would imitate God. Jesus is presented as God. And given the greatest attestation you could take in that he was raised from the dead to vindicate that he is God. The miracles that he performed were meant to perform them in manners that showed you he is God. You think of the calming of the sea. Most of his miracles were not just Freak shows, none of them are really. Some people try to make it out that way. And, and, and though they were healing events, many of them, they were all healing events in a manner that showed you that he was not just a healer, but a creator God. They were new creation events over and over and over again. You think of, of that story of, of, again, the calming of the sea, and I've, I just love this story. It's one of my favorite stories. And what I love about it is how afraid the disciples were not because they're about to die by the storm, but how afraid they were when God, in Christ, with a single word, calmed the storm. Then they were overwrought with fear, for they were sitting in the boat with God. God, that's incredible. Guys, either we believe this or we don't. Either we're playing patty cake here and doing, I don't know what you want to call it, looking for a nice little moral, you know, to the story ending to this lecture, or as a sermon, you're hearing the word of God tell you there is a God. If we don't reckon with that, we're screwed. The disciples knew it. They saw and behold that this man sitting in a boat with them was God. For only God with a word can say to a hurricane, stop. It stops. This is back tingling. Are we prepared to get in that boat? That's what this is story about, this kingdom of God thing. If you've been around the church for years and years and years and years and years, I'm sorry, but I bet you the kingdom of God has become kind of tame. And we need to all of us wake up. This is big stuff. We see how Christ alone 
It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God and the Son of God are correlates in Jesus. We see that in Daniel. We hear how Christ is described in Colossians 1, how he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What's being described there is a supernatural, holy dominion with Christ as its king. And then this, of course, focuses itself. We'll read about this in two weeks. But in verse 18 of Colossians, and this one is head over the body of the church. And as Matthew will describe later in 16, the church now becomes the epicenter of this expanding the kingdom of God on earth. The take home is the Bible never speaks of us advancing the kingdom. The take home is the kingdom will come. We must receive it. We must receive it. We can't build it. We receive it by submitting ourselves to his word and his laws. We receive it by receiving Christ's atoning death for our sins. We receive it by receiving Christ as the Lord of our lives. You can't be in the kingdom and just be Christ's savior. He has to be Lord because lordship is how he saves you. Do we understand that? To rebel against the words of Christ is to rebel against salvation itself. For the very words are the kingdom of God that brings into our space and time and life the very sovereign rule that brings peace and, and happiness and safety and, and sustenance. It's coming together. That's why the people cried out in the Old Testament, oh, we want a king. God was offended because of, what do you mean? I've been your king. I am your king. But knowing in their weakness, he gave them a king, a king that would become the foreshadowing of the mediatorial king, that is, Jesus Christ, David. Only to accommodate to them. For they need something on earth. That new image bearer that could be localized into our presence. The sovereign rule of God. Of course, again, in Christ we see David fulfilled in the church we see Israel fulfilled. That's what's going on right now in this room. That's the take home. To say it negatively, there's a great temptation to a false hope in where and how we go about building the kingdom of God. That is, we live and swim in this post-enlightened world of I'll use the isms, the humanisms, the scientisms, the rationalisms, the politicizationism, the hedonisms. Whether it's empiricism, whether it's rational, I mean, it's all there. And every bit of them are acids to the kingdom of God when they are unfettered from God. Which by law in this country they must be. At least from the state. That's incredible. Stop and think about that. How the culture is fundamentally secular, even if you can say I'm religious or spiritual. But there's this notion. And so what does it do? It means that we set ourselves up and we build what's called idols. 
John Calvin said that we are all idol factories. You see, idols satisfy the appearance of God. Idols allow us to remain God, though. We, we kind of come up with this noble thing, this, this God-like thing, which makes us feel better about our being God. Because if you know anything about idols, what they all have in common is that they offer you what ultimately they can't give. And they'll blame you when they don't for not working hard enough for them. I think of Egypt. How it was that Egypt, you know, was an idol of Israel. Remember, it starts with this positive relationship with Egypt. Egypt's our savior. And then you got to make more, more, more bricks. Less, less, less straw. The reason you're not satisfied is you, you, you. No, the reason you're not satisfied is because you fabricated an idol after your own image. And you can't save yourself. Now, we do that all the time. What are our passions and desires that wage war within us and pour out when I don't get what I want? What are those things that seem maybe even trivial but, but tempt us to anger, anxiety, and fear? These are our idols. These are ways that we're trying to build kingdoms with our own ingenuity. In biblical terms, an idol is anything other than God that we set our hearts on, that, we, that motivates us that masters or rules us, or that we serve. You've got to be honest with yourself. Just putting God at the end of a sentence doesn't make God your sovereign. Just ending in your name we pray doesn't make God your sovereign. It's really got to be gut check time. What am I doing and why am I doing it? And what kind of weight am I putting on it? for my happiness. I wish I could go on here, but I need to move on. Finally, it's dynamic. It's dynamic. What does that mean? It says, interesting, here again, it's the perfect form of a gizzo in, in, in grammar's terms. That means to say that this word means to bring near, can be, it's brought near, it is coming near, and it's going to be near. It's that kind of grammatical construction. And we see it all through the scripture. Again, notice the phrase and the, this, this language being framed carefully in a context where before it, the kingdom of God is in the midst of great tension and conflict. Does that look like the kingdom of God when Jesus is up there being tempted on a mountain? Does that look like the kingdom of God when Paul's head is being severed? Doesn't look like the kingdom of God's coming. Sure, where's the kingdom of God? And then right after this passage, verse 17, we have this incredible commission. And the expansion of the kingdom begins. And it begins to expand more and more and more. And the crowds begin to build. People are being saved. We call it the now and not yet. The kingdom came inaugurated, was inaugurated in the coming of Jesus Christ. The kingdom is coming by the power of the Holy Spirit acting in with and through the church of Jesus Christ. That is the mediatorial presence of Christ, the body of Christ. It will come catastrophically in the bodily return of Jesus himself to earth. 
I say catastrophically because it'll be a culmination of the collisions that happen every day in your life, but it will be that kind of great collision framed in the scripture as a great battle. And it doesn't have to refer to one particular battle or anything like that. I don't want to go into Revelations now. But the image is this great collision that takes place. Sounds of trumpet and lightning, and it's just, it's all depicted in, in semi-representational fashion so that you might know that there's a great collision, of course, that's yet awaiting a judgment. God come to earth finally. This is a dynamic kind of a kingdom. We see it in Luke chapter 17, for instance, where, where Christ's own coming is the coming of the kingdom. And he's asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was to come. And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor with, will they say, lo, here it is, or there. For behold, the judgment kingdom of God is in the midst of you now. Now, that's interesting. He's saying, on the one hand, it's not coming in the, the cataclysmic manner in which you're envisioning in which it will come, but it is already here. You reject me, you're rejecting the kingdom, is his point. Clearly, it's not yet per present. He proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to be appearing immediately, thinking, again, as many people did, that he was going to come and restore the kingdom in Rome. Rome was going to become a, a nation state that was the kingdom. But then he said he was near Jerusalem. In other words, they thought he was about to make his move on the power center of the land and set up an earthly kingdom. What does that sound like? That was the common conception at that time. But he said to them, the parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. That is to say, it would be a long time in the future. In other words, Jesus is going back to heaven and will be gone sometime before he returns to establish his kingdom in power and glory. Make no mistake about it. The coming of the kingdom of God is at hand. For he has come and is coming in, with and through the mediatorial body of Christ, the church. But it will come. So what do we do with that? Oops, got to stop. Gosh, this is too good to stop, but I'm going to stop. What's your expectation now for the kingdom of God? Are you understanding that it's a collision course? Do you understand that for the kingdom of God to come in your life, it will involve a collision with your world as it was? Things will have to change and keep changing. Idols will need to be slayed. Purposes will need to be reevaluated. Money will be reallocated. Time will be reallocated. That's what this is about when it is the kingdom of God. It says, you shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 20. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John 5, 21. That tension is the reality of our life. And yet, how will it all end? It'll all end with the truth. There is a God. He is victorious in the end. You are either screwed or you are blessed. It's really that simple. How would that change our passion and our vocations?
our ultimate passion, our ultimate vocation of life. 